Staying sharp, pointed, and insightful. This is Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Congress has given the president this authority. In 1976, Congress passed a law that gave the president the ability to declare a national emergency. But I think the president is doing an incredible job now. I don't know that he needs to sell anything to anybody. I think he just needs to keep doing what he's doing. And now, Stacey Washington. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the program. Now on hour two, guess what we're going to have today? We're going to chat with Jonathan Wood, attorney for the Pacific Legal Foundation. They're going to, um, they're, they actually have a lawsuit going on about the CRA. Um, and we're going to talk about this ruling by an Idaho judge. And it, it, this is super important because um, we need the CRA to be able to limit the authority of agencies. And we've seen a lot of abdication by Congress. They basically give rulemaking authority to uh, unelected bureaucrats. And those bureaucrats use that rulemaking authority to infringe on the constitutionally protected rights of Americans through business, through enterprise, and through personal activities. And so we need the CRA to be utilized to stop all of that. And uh, so we, we want to follow the kinds of lawsuits that are going on surrounding that subject. So Jonathan will join us to talk about that and the work that they're doing with their lawsuit. So now it's time to talk about this uh, this resolution, this, this, this bill, where they want to limit the president's ability to... Uh, do the national emergency. And so, as you might have seen, this is all going on live because we're on the radio live here. 12 Senate Republicans just helped Democrats block Trump's border wall national emergency. Uh, Vox.com is calling it a staggering rebuke. I don't know how it's a staggering rebuke if he saw it coming and the the senators had already said they were going to do it. And I don't know how it's a staggering rebuke when, honestly, we know that there are uniparty members and swamp knuckle draggers running around D.C. who love open borders. They don't care how many Americans die at the hands of MS-13 or illegal aliens. They're just going to keep on doing what they do because they're paid to do it. They're, they're, they should have the NASCAR shirt with all of the MS-13 and Sinaloa cartel logos on it so they can really let Americans' constituents know who they represent. That's what's really going on here. You get that? I mean, if if you're not... At that point where you realize that's what's going on, then I have to give you some, you know, maybe some smelling salts or something and smack you around the face a little bit to get you to come along with us, understand what we're seeing here. So Vox calls the number staggering. A staggering 12 Senate Republicans have officially voted to block President Donald Trump's declaration of a national emergency. Let me list them off for you. Some of them are the usual suspects. Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski. Rand Paul, who I respect a great deal, but he's always from this bent. This is always his angle. Um, I'm not shocked to see him. Mitt Romney, who is the new, uh, let's see, who does, who's played? He takes the place of John McCain and Jeff Flake, who were reliably rhino in their orientation. Sorry. Mike Lee, who I'm disappointed to see take this action. I really like Senator Mike Lee. Lamar Alexander, Jerry Moran, Pat Toomey, Rob Portman, Roger Wicker, Roy Blunt. What are you thinking, Senator Blunt? And Marco Rubio. Have you lost your mind? Ultimately joined with the Democrats to vote for a resolution terminating the president's national emergency. So the final vote was 59 to 41. 
And it's the second time in as many days that Senate Republicans have directly confronted the president's. They, it says here, Wednesday, seven Republican senators voted in favor of a resolution to end U.S. involvement in Saudi Arabia's war in Yemen. Uh, apparently, the president's going to veto that, too. I don't know why the warmongers are against our activities in Yemen with one of our partners in the region, Saudi Arabia, but they're not against our other actions that we're taking around the world. When, when President Trump said he was going to pull back the 2,000 troops we have left in Syria, they were like, oh, no, you can't do that. That's that's detrimental to America. That's just like what Barack Obama did. But then he says we're going to keep on helping the Saudi Arabians wage war in Yemen. And they're like, no, we don't like that. I don't even care what the details are. I just think they should be consistent. Either get with the rest of us as Americans who want to see us involved in less foreign conflict or just open the floodgates and let's just bomb everything and let's just get it on. Let's rumble. Let's do what we do best. We make war. We're awesome at it. We have good equipment. We have fantastic soldiers and airmen. Let's just bomb it all and get it done. I I, I hate this Habsies playing footsie with the enemy. At least the president has unleashed the military to be able to use all of their resources. And that's how we've been able to beat back ISIS and, and actually wage war well, wiping out the Russian mercenaries. I mean, we've, we've done a pretty good job here. But again, inconsistency is the hallmark of the U.S. Republican Senate. That's what we're looking at here. So um, they can confront him all they want, but the president's going to veto And the president also tweeted out, just to make sure that everyone understands where he's coming from, Republican senators are overthinking tomorrow's vote on the national emergency. It's very simple. Border security equals no crime. It should not be thought of in any other way. We have a major national emergency at our border, and the people of our country know it very well. So, obviously, I have voted for Senator Roy Blunt in the past. I consider him to be very friendly, Um, you know, I've not had him on the show, so I'm not sure if I'm giving him the correct designation, but I have met with him before. He's he's actually met our kids. I mean, I feel like he's a, a solid supporter of the president, but this is a mistake on his part, voting against the president on immigration. And so, you know, as I said last hour, this is something that I'm going to have to consider when he's up for reelection. And I don't like saying that, and I don't say it lightly. So we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. We'll see what his response is, because I'd love to hear from him directly, and maybe we'll be able to get him on the program. I I don't know. Maybe we can see if uh, Senator Blunt will join us. Um, Our program is now, it's pretty decently sized. We're, you know, nothing to scoff at here. It's not a waste of his time to join us. Um, So maybe he'll join us and explain what exactly is going on here. Um, I, I would have more respect for Republicans voting against the national emergency if they'd been able to do something legislatively. Remember, it's the House and the Senate that pass and usher legislation into law for the president to sign. And so if they don't give him any legislation that gives the president border wall, border wall funding, you know, more ICE agents, more technology, uh, and the ability to stop, catch, and release, if they're not going to do that, then how can they veto the national emergency? You just can't sit back and do nothing and then say, oh, yeah, by the way, you can't do anything either. Just help me understand somebody, please, you know, beam it in, warp it in, whatever you have to do, mail it in, email it in, text it in, direct message it in. 
encrypted, send it to me in Telegram. Somebody help me understand how you can do nothing, absolutely nothing on the border. You can't get any new money. You can't get any new technology, no new border agents. You can't get anything the president's asked for. You can't get it done. You're sitting on your hands. You're back in your district, palling around and raising 35000 bucks a plate. But when it comes time for the president to say, you know what, I got to do something for the American people. I made promises. I deliver on my promises. I have a whiteboard. I need to cross this off. I'm going to do a national emergency because it is a national emergency. And then you're going to say, um, we can't do anything about it and neither can you? Senator Roy Blunt, what do you mean by this? And I'm speaking to him because he's my senior senator from the great state of Missouri. And I don't like calling friends on the carpet, but I'll have to do it because my allegiance is not to a party or to a specific senator. It is to the rule of law, national sovereignty, and what we have going on. When we're looking at that flag waving in the breeze and we're saying, I pledge allegiance to the flag, and we're acting like Americans, we darn well better be willing to actually be Americans. And that means all of the people in this country who are here lawfully, who are citizens of this country, those people matter. I've said it before, and I'll just reiterate it one more time before we get to this audio. A person who doesn't take care of their family members, the Bible says they're worse than an infidel. And so when I'm done taking care of my family members, then I can give to to people in need outside the house. But no kids or husband or myself are going to go hungry. The dog's not going to go without kibble while I'm donating to some outside group or organization. That's not the way it's supposed to work. And this country is our home, and American citizens are our brethren, and we have to take care of them first before we say El Salvadorians and Hondurans and Mexicans and other countrymen are more important. They're currently robbing us at the rate of $132 billion a year. That's what we spend on illegal immigration. And... I just can't stomach people who are paid $178,000 a year to represent us in the Senate standing up to the president on this, but they couldn't stand up to the Democrats to get the president any funding. Where were Rand Paul and Mitt Romney and Mike Lee and Lamar Alexander and Pat Toomey and Rob Portman and Roger Wicker and Roy Blunt and Marco Rubio, Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins? Where were y'all when the president needed y'all to get the, the funding for funding the border wall? Where were you? Because there would be no national emergency if we had legislation on his desk that gave him the funding that he needed. Oh, yeah, you were in the corner getting told off by Dianne Feinstein and Nancy Pelosi, who both of them are short and small. Why are you letting them, like, stare you down? If a Democrat puts their finger in your face, you say, conversation over. If you get cornered, you say, put your arm down, I'm out of here, and just walk off. You don't have to let anybody put you in a corner and make you feel as if you don't have the right to your vote. If you're scared of them, what are you doing there? If you're afraid of Ilhan Omar, who wears the headscarf of oppression, or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who honestly doesn't know a checkbook from a coupon book, you're afraid of those people. What are you doing there? We've got to send people to the U.S. Senate who can actually add and subtract, who know what their job is. It's to legislate. They're in the legislative And for goodness sakes, who understand what side of the aisle they're on. It's a a huge abdication of their duties not to give the president the funding that he needed for the border wall. 
And it is a huge slap in the face to Americans to say after doing that, that the president can't go and use what's been given to him, congressionally approved authority to declare national emergencies. He can't use that to move funds around and make sure the border wall happens. So uh, this is important for us to listen to as well. I have the president, uh, short clip of him warning the GOP senators about what's at stake if they go against him. And we heard the ones that just did. And I'm on the bandwagon and I'm all about telling everybody, um, if you're in Missouri, you got some decisions to make in 2020 about your senator because he just voted against the president. It's number four. But I told Republican senators, vote any way you want. Vote how you feel good. But I think it's bad for a Republican senator. I also think it's bad for a Democrat senator to vote against border security and to vote against the wall. I think if they vote that way, it's a very bad thing for them long into the future. So there are things he can do. Obviously, uh, you know, there's there's party money that goes to reelection efforts for senators that you know will be in play. And Bill Kristol, who was on CNN looking puffed up and very satisfied with himself because every person who's on the right who defects and joins the leftists and fighting the president on the border just gives Bill Kristol just another little feather in his his, you know, uh, peacock plume to be excited about being the biggest, hugest rhino and never Trumper in America. And so he was on CNN talking about how Vice President Pence had been on the Hill meeting with senators, letting them know what was at stake. It's number five. I spoke with one Republican senator the last few days who said, Behind the scenes, the lobbying's been intense. The vice, vice President Pence has been the key person, and they sent him to the Hill repeatedly, and he's been on the phone with senators, uh, seen them at other places, and telling them this is important to the president if you want to keep that good relationship, both for uh, avoiding primary challenges, but one forgets also these senators have a million favors to ask of the White House, matters of business with different, uh, I mean, legitimate things for their constituents with different parts of the government, and they want to be wealth. And this president's pretty personal about how he deals with these things. So, um, so it's, they've been putting a lot of pressure on, but they're, they're going to lose not just four or five. I think they're going to lose something like 10 Republican senators. Yeah, so it was 12. Uh, Bill Crystal had his ear to the ground. He was, he was pretty close to accurate there. Um, but this is nothing to gloat over. Um, if you're an American, a, a lawful, lawfully present American, a citizen, the people that I'm talking to right now, because I'm not, I'm not talking to illegal aliens. Um, I'm not talking, you know, we, we have an audience of people who are outside the country. We have people from Great Britain who listen to the show, and I love that. But when I say citizens, I mean it. Um, this is an issue that we have to be firm on, and we can't give up on it. We can't get discouraged. We can't allow this development to lower our resolve. You're either for the rule of law or you're against it. There's no in-between. When we get back, we're going to have Jonathan Wood, who is an attorney for the Pacific Legal Foundation. Stay right there. More Stacey on the right up next. The Ministry of Preborn meets abortion-minded women right where they are. When a young mom sees her baby on ultrasound, she's 80% more likely to keep her baby. And I got to hear and see my baby for the first time. Hearing the heartbeat made me cry. And it was certain that I was going to keep my baby forever. This mom chose life for her baby. She's been such a joy. Her name even means rebirth and sort of being raised up from the ashes. Uh, I now see my daughter and I cannot imagine my life without my happy, lovely, joyful, smart baby, and I'm so grateful. Preborn runs and leads Christian pregnancy centers all over the country. 
To find out more, go to preborn.com. That's preborn.com. Or dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby. That's pound 250 and say baby. Your love can save a life. This is Viewpoints with Kirby Anderson. The political justification for more government intervention into America's health care system is the claim that health care is a right. Proponents of the Affordable Care Act in the past made this claim. Current members of Congress pushing Medicare for All Act also make that claim as well. Let me start by saying that health care is not a right, at least as properly understood. But even if you accept that as a right, it cannot be applied in the way it is being used in the current debate. First, it's not a right if we use the past understanding of rights. The Declaration of Independence states that we have an unalienable right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But that doesn't mean people have to give us life or make us happy. It is understood as a negative right. You have the right not to be killed, unless you're an unwanted, unborn child. You have the right not to have your liberties, like free speech, taken away from you. These are what we might call negative rights. But the left is now proposing what could be called positive rights. We supposedly have the right to housing, health care, maybe even the right to a free college tuition. This is something fundamentally different. Second, even if you accept that flawed view, you have a major problem. How do you have the right to something that is economically scarce? How does everyone have a right to kidney dialysis when we don't have enough machines? How do we have a right to a doctor when there are more people who want a personal physician than there are doctors to go around? So rejecting the idea that health care is a right doesn't mean that we should dismiss the importance of health care. Actually, it's just the opposite. Trying to provide quality health care is so important that it shouldn't be left to bureaucrats working in an incompetent government agency. I'm Kirby Anderson, and that's my point of view. Take Kirby and the Point of View team with you on the go with the Point of View app. Search for Point of View Radio at the Apple or Google Play stores. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Welcome back to the program. Thanks so much for being with us today. I'm just so excited about our next guest, Jonathan Wood. He's an attorney for the Pacific Legal Foundation. Jonathan, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Let's talk about this Congressional Review Act. What's going on? That's right. The Congressional Review Act is a 1996 law with a basic order to the administrative agencies that make most of the rules that govern us. Uh, It simply requires that every new rule a bureaucrat wants to impose on you or me has to first be submitted to our elected representatives in Congress, giving them an opportunity to pass whether the law is or whether the regulation is lawful or good sense. And at Pacific Legal Foundation, we found that agencies have routinely violated this obligation, withholding rules from congressional review, including major controversial rules. Uh-oh. Okay, I think we may have lost. Okay, he's probably going to call us right back. Um, what I want to point out about this is that the president has been utilizing, uh, Congress under the president has been utilizing the Congressional Review Act to really get rid of um, uh, some of the law-breaking that's been going on. They've Okay, perfect. So, Jonathan, thank you for calling back in. Um, you were discussing how it's it's basically been, they, p- these agencies have been going around this law from 1996. 
That's exactly right, and that's why it's critical that courts enforce the Congressional Review Act against the agencies that ignore it, and that's something PLF is working very hard to ensure. And we're very pleased to say that in the last couple of weeks we got a favorable decision from one district court out of Idaho saying exactly that, that if an agency violates the Congressional Review Act, refuses to submit its work to Congress as the law requires, Mm. courts are there to serve as a backstop and will require the agencies to comply. Okay, this is actually good news. Um, this this is a, a win for us, right? Absolutely. Yeah, this is not just a win for the people affected by this one rule, which has to do with a, more than 170 million acres throughout the West. This is a win for democratic government across the board. Whatever issues you care about, judicial decisions like this will ensure that Congress has a say in what the rules are, rather than letting unelected bureaucrats put alone. So what are we to expect next? Because I know one, one of the things that you do at uh, PLF is you you find these kind of, it's like under the radar areas where people are law-breaking or, or flouting the Constitution, and you elevate them by creating a lawsuit and trying to get someone to take notice of it to kind of right the wrong. What's next on the track for making sure that these agencies abide by the Congressional Review Act? A couple of different things. So first there is the, the court Track. We expect this case will eventually get appealed, and hopefully we'll make it all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, which has shown increased interest in recent years in providing for judicial review to hold agencies accountable. In fact, in the last five years, agencies have lost three cases unanimously on that question. They're not having to do with Congressional Review Act. But the courts aren't alone in having an ability to deal with this problem. The agencies can obviously deal with it themselves. The Trump administration could order uh, every agency to go back and look at what rules they've wrongfully withheld from Congress and start sending them up for review as required. And, of course, Congress can do something about it, withholding money from agencies that refuse to comply or holding hearings to demand that they finally follow the law. Hmm. So what, could, what should Americans, as we, as we listen to you talk about this and we're like, woohoo, a victory, what, what can we expect to see um, is there like a tangible difference that Americans are going to see in interacting with a specific agency surrounding this ruling? I think so. So we have found that the Congressional Review Act has had a significant restraining influence on agencies. The simple fact is that if a bureaucrat knows that his work is going to be reviewed by elected members of Congress, the rule is going to look differently than if he thinks he's the final word and doesn't have to justify himself to anyone. And in fact, the Congressional Review Act was a critical part of the Trump administration and Congress's recent rollbacks to many of the most ambitious and aggressive pieces of executive power by the Obama administration. So we see this as part of a broader trend towards holding agencies accountable, limiting the powers that they shouldn't have been given in the first place, and ensuring that power ultimately lies where it's supposed to, which is in Congress. So what I want to do is just... Basically, I want to say thanks for the work that you guys are doing over at the Pacific Legal Foundation, because you probably don't get that a lot. Um, but I, I actually, I've been aware of the CRA, and I've, also, I've always been a supporter of it, because I think if you know anyone who works for the federal government, I have people in my family that work for the federal government. I always try to make sure and let the disclaimer out. I'm not un, unaffected by um, people who are federal government workers, and they feel like the work they do is really important but sometimes when they're complaining about, you know, some some of the things about the bureaucracy that don't work or some of the things that 
don't make sense about the bureaucracy, they kind of their their complaints dovetail in with what you've just described, where a bureaucrat will say, you know what, I, I just really think we should do it this way. And if they know no one else is going to push back on that, that's what they'll do. But if they know other people are going to review what they're proposing and that there's a possibility that they'll get smacked down because it's embarrassing to get smacked down at work, then they won't create these ridiculous rules that really hurt us. They make it impossible for us to live our lives without lots and lots of basically dancing with the government. And that's never fun. That's exactly right. Judicial review of issues like this. And in fact, Congress taking a more aggressive role is critical to keeping administrative agencies in check. But it also has an important influence on Congress. The people we elect to write the laws should take accountability for what laws and regulations say. And for too long, Congress has been more than happy to kick the can over to bureaucrats and let them do all the work. The Congressional Review Act puts an end to that and says that, no, every time there's a new rule, Congress has to consider it and will ultimately pay the political price if the rule is controversial or ultimately harmful. Hmm. Well, thank you. Thank you for what you're doing. And keep doing it. Don't stop. Don't don't stop here. Keep keep putting these bureaucrats up in the bright light where we can see what they're doing and kind of say, you know what? Not today, bureaucrats. You're not doing that to us today. Um, they have plenty to do. If they just did their regular work, we would probably all be the better for it instead of them making up these crazy rules and really making our lives just horrible to try to get through. Here, here. All right. Well, we'll talk to you again soon. Um, I actually have now connected up with you guys for us to continue to have you on to update us on the developments from the Pacific Legal Foundation. And we appreciate the work that you're doing. Thank you. And thank you for having me on. All right. Talk to you again soon. Jonathan Wood. Um, We are now going to kind of get into we have a little bit more um, information. So first of all, I know. You know, we're a little ticked off at the Senate Republicans that did this. They've given yet another win for Chuck Schumer. He's already out crowing about how, you know, they're able to put a stop to this executive overreach. Also, this vote that they've taken really validates the assertion that there's no national emergency, that there isn't a problem at the border. Now, if you've been listening to this program, you know we have played the audio from the Border Patrol and Enforcement Agents. We played the audio from from uh, Secretary of Homeland Security, Secretary Nielsen. We've played the audio from other former heads of Border Patrol and the sector heads of Border Patrol. Anyone who's been down to the border, and if I could find audio of them talking about it, we've played it. I've given you the statistics. We've talked about the costs of the illegal alien invasion. We've talked about the human costs for people who are trafficked into this country and sold into sexual slavery. We've discussed all of it. There's nothing, there's no part of it that we've left unturned. I've acknowledged that there are plenty of people who are in this country illegally who are law-abiding and are just here to work, but it's still breaking the law, and there is no justification for it. And- I've talked about the people who support the president and we've talked about the people who've opposed it. And if you want to listen to any of that, or if you're wondering about the interviews we've done, you can always go to urbanfamilytalk.com slash Stacy, or you can go to AFR.net and click on any one of the little logos that's for the Stacy on the right show. And I'll take you to my podcast page. You can listen. You actually have two options at urban family talk. You get the whole show at AFR. You get the show with no promotions, commercials. We don't really have commercials. We have sponsors, but you you understand what I'm saying. It's a shorter, faster listen if you go to AFR. Both hours are at both locations. Um, and then if you go to YouTube, you can watch the show and you'll see me sneezing and like losing my mind this past few days. It's been really horrible to watch the show. I don't know why. 
why do we why do we even live stream it? So you guys had to basically I would just put up the little slide so you don't see me like literally blowing my nose. But anyway, um, so you have a lot of options to catch that content and each show is titled. You can kind of see what we were talking about that day. So you can go check it out. Um, I, I just want people to be informed and I understand that not everyone's going to agree um, with my perspective on, on the border and all of that. And some people agree, but to a lesser degree. In other words, they're more moderate about it. They don't think we should kind of do deportation, but I just want to add a little bit of a, kind of an intersection. If you think about the number of black Americans who've been aborted due to Roe v. Wade, it's around 16 million. So there are about 38 to 40 million blacks in America. So if you add that 16 million, that would be, let's say it's 40 million, that'd be 56 million Americans who are black. Now, if you look at the number of Americans or number of people, they're not Americans, they're people who are in the country illegally, notice how everyone stopped using the number 11 million. They've been using that number since the mid-90s. We know for a fact, just based on tax returns for people who are in the country illegally but still claim the earned income tax credit, that that number is really more like 28 million, which is an extremely conservative estimate. It could be as high as 32, 38 million. So the same number of people in the country who are black, who are lawfully here, we're citizens of this country, that there's an illegal population equal to that. Then there's the Hispanic population in America, which is 18%. That's the Hispanics who are here lawfully. So do you see how illegal immigration is a tool and mechanism by which you can literally change the electorate of this country? People coming from socialist nations who have not been assimilated into our way of life are much more likely to vote for socialist policies where Americans who are born with freedom in their veins and it's not really it's in your veins, but it's not really in your veins because what happens is we've I've read the stories and I've seen the news reports. People who are in the country illegally who are deported, if they've been here for 10 years or so and they're deported, the first thing they notice when they get back to Mexico or El Salvador is that they have to bribe the government officials to get them to do their jobs, that the educational offerings are not up to snuff, that the roads aren't paved and maintained. And so what they do is they start demanding the same types of things they've gotten used to living illegally in America. So when we say freedom is in your veins, what we really mean is if you grow up free, if you grow up in a country where you have a constitution and and there's a rule of law and people expect government officials to do their jobs and people expect people in the private sector to do their job because the free market will put you out of business if you don't, then when you go to a country that's run by socialists where those things aren't expected, you're just going to be affronted, perpetually triggered, angry, upset, not happy. Now, I've suggested, I mean, earlier this week, I was on the kick where America just travels on down to South America and we just take all of it over and we turn it into like like eight states or 10 states or something. We install Americans to run everything, route out the terrorists, you know, use drones, whatever, just completely wipe out all the the uh, the corruption and all that stuff and put Americans down there. Give Americans incentives to move down to the South American countries and set up the same type of government that we have here. And then we take it over and then no one has to travel. You just stay where you are. And as we develop your country into South America, like real South America, South United States of America, then you don't have to travel up here and try to be up here because we're bringing it down there to you. We're just taking that thing over. Now, obviously, 
other nations around the world would not want us to do that because they love coming here and living here, but they don't want to see us get any bigger. And they certainly don't want to admit that our experiment is the best experiment. Our way, our government's the best and our Judeo-Christian, you know, that whole thing is just awesome. It rocks that God is in control that, you know, just acknowledging that and putting that into your founding documents makes everything you're doing after that totally awesome. Nobody wants to admit that. But if we're not doing that, one of the side effects of deporting 32 million, and don't say we can't do it. We can do it. We can do anything. If we can collect taxes from 300 million Americans, if they know how much tax you've paid, if we can save all the metadata for every cell phone in America, uh, for, for, for like since whenever that law was passed, the Patriot Act, we've been saving all the metadata. <laughs> if we can do that, we can certainly deport 32 million people. I mean, we have the planes, we have the manpower, we have the know-how. Some of it would happen self-deportation, and some of it would just be what we're doing now, rounding people up and flying them to their home country. And so if we were to deport, let's say we just deported 80% or 75% or even 50% of those people, they would go back to their home countries, and the side effect would be that they would be so utterly horrified at the government that's there that they would start changing things. Now, that's a slower process. Um, it, it is obviously difficult to rat out corruption and to, to convince people who've never known freedom that freedom is a better option. But that is what would happen. Those people would go back and they would improve the country that they actually are citizens of. And for people who are like you're right now, you're thinking, OK, Stacy, that's fine. But what about the kids? The kids are American citizens. Yeah, they're not. That amendment was passed for the children of freed slaves to make sure that the children of freed slaves couldn't be deported. So if you're not descended from a slave, miss me with that talk about that amendment that makes you a citizen because you were born on American soil. The question is, is one of your parents an American citizen? Otherwise, if you're born here and both of your parents are foreigners, you're not an American. A misapplication of the law doesn't change your status. So your children, who might have been born here but born to foreigners, They go back with you. Take them on back. They're cute. They're lovely. They probably speak perfect English or maybe not. I don't care. Go back. The effect of that would be that your country would improve. And I have to wonder why no one is interested in improving these countries. Why they all have to come here to mainland America and be right here on this soil, drunk driving, stealing jobs from the lower echelons of society, making sure that black Americans can't get jobs in chicken processing plants and uh, in construction, you know, just completely obliterating the lives of so many Americans who have a right to be here. And those are just two off the top of my head ideas that, you know, I don't know if they're unworkable. I don't know if they are palatable. I'm just talking about what we could do and what could happen. And if there's anything we ought to know after all this time is that anything is possible because we are Americans and we do believe that and we prove it every day. We need solutions on this, and I just, I'm just i disappointed that the Republicans choose to vote against the president instead of bringing solutions to the table. It's one thing to disagree. It's another thing to disagree obstinately and not provide any solutions. All right, when we get back, we'll have the last segment of the show today. Stay right there. Stay on the right. Have you noticed how your priorities change as you grow older? They are simple and silly as children. Most of us don't even want to admit what they were in college. As a young adult, they start becoming more serious, and then your priorities completely change when you have a family. As we reach the last quarter of life, 
we start thinking more about our mortality and what waits for us. The problem with that is none of us are guaranteed any amount of time. Don't wait until you think you need to get serious about God. He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to offer you forgiveness and hope for eternity. Don't ignore that gift and wait any longer to invite Jesus Christ into your life. Call 888-NEED-HIM to learn how to have a personal relationship with Jesus and take care of the biggest priority in life. That number is 888-NEED-HIM. 888-NEED-HIM. Laura Perry. She refused to use the male pronouns or call me Jake. So what that did for me that she didn't know at the time, that was like a tether to reality. God never let me forget who I was. And that was a radical thought to me, and I did not want to hear it at first. <laughs> when I first heard it, it really kind of made me angry. The Marriage, Family, and Life Conference is coming June 20th through the 22nd. Learn more and register at urbanfamilytalk.com. If your primary identity is in Jesus Christ, then you don't care whether your family likes it, you don't care whether black folks like it, or white folks like it, or Democrats like it, or Republicans like it, or independents like it. It's Jesus. You don't care who likes it, you're going to line yourself up with the Word of God and what Jesus Christ requires of you. Urban Family Talk with Bishop E.W. Jackson and The Awakening, weekday mornings at 9 Central. It's about Jesus. Jesus. This is Fox on Justice. During a televised hearing, Congressman Mike Quigley asked two justices of the Supreme Court, why not allow video of the court's deliberations? After all, Quigley said, We flub up a lot here, but we're on C-SPAN. And uh, so our mistakes are live. The issue of cameras in the Supreme Court has come up before and has been rejected. No different this time. Justice Samuel Alito said he worries about grandstanding lawyers. I think it, uh, lawyers would find it irresistible to try to put in a little soundbite in the hope of being that evening on CNN or Fox. And Justice Elena Kagan, who often takes the opposite view of Justice Alito, agrees with him on this issue. Hearings change when cameras are there. She says the court works well and it's risky to mess with it by adding cameras. If the seeing it came at the expense of the way the institution functioned, that would be a very bad bargain. With Fox on Justice, Hank Weinblum, Fox News. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. You know what? I, I just think overall people have to look at their life now versus two or three years ago. And are they doing better? Do they feel like their family has better opportunities? Do they have a full-time instead of a part-time job now? I always think people vote with their wallets and their pocketbooks. And, and even though they're not going to tell anybody, Shannon, they're going to go in a voting booth and they're going to vote for Donald Trump. And, and they're going to come out and not tell the pollster, the exit pollster on the way out. They may not tell their friends and family. But I think the president is doing an incredible job now. I don't know that he needs to sell anything to anybody. I think he just needs to keep doing what he's doing. I do think as Republicans and as a campaign, it is incumbent upon us to make sure we showcase what the Democrats are offering, which is socialism, and what that would mean for our country. It would be incredibly detrimental. You see Venezuela and the mess they are in. That is a great example of a socialist-run country. Um, so I think that that's work that we have to do. I think the president just keeps doing what he's doing. 
And welcome back to the program. Stacey Washington, host of Stacey on the Right, here on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. I'm also the 2018 Journalist of the Year for the Second Amendment Foundation and also the co-chair, one of the co-chairs of Project 21, the National Advisory Council for the National Center for Public Policy Research. That's a mouthful. You can find out more at nationalcenter.org. And um, that was Laura Trump. You know, her husband, Eric, has been on the program a couple of times and I really love what Lara Trump is describing there, which is it's a personal choice. It's a personal decision. No one has to share who they voted for. Uh, I know I wear everything on my sleeve and I tell it all. Um, you know, that's my job here on the radio. But for Americans who are finding themselves with lower taxes or a better job prospect or maybe just able to do more with what they have, keeping more of their money in their pocket and able to invest and do what have you. Um, those Americans are going to be very loath to make changes at the presidential level. They might vote against a senator or, or for another House member. Um, they might be interested in a primary prospect for some reason, you know, some reason having to do with legislation or what have you. But as far as changing the executive, they're going to be kind of wary of doing that. The Democrats are going to make a really strong effort of uh, demonizing him and making this about something, anything they can find. Um, the Charlotte comments are one thing, and I, so let's 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 talk about that for a second. Earlier this week, we saw two questions, both from CNN people. One was from April Ryan, the other was uh, Jim Acosta. So Sarah Huckabee Sanders had a very rare appearance at the podium for a press briefing, and they launched in with their questions about Charlottesville. Now, why is Charlottesville still important? I mean, obviously, we all mourn the loss of the young woman who was driven over by the white supremacist. But why do they keep bringing Charlottesville up? Well, they've created this false narrative around the president saying that there were good people on both sides, meaning that there were good people on both sides of the neo-Nazi part of the protest, the white supremacists. Um, So you have the white supremacists on one side and you have the counter protesters on the other side. And if he said there were good people on both sides, that means that there were good people mixed in among the white supremacists. And why would he say that? So. I, I, I got to debunk this for a second here, and I, I want there to be a full understanding that if the president was giving a pass to white supremacists, black conservatives would have a problem with that. Uh, Bibi Netanyahu and Israel would have a problem with that. Many, many white Americans would have a problem with that. I'd say most. You know, this idea that we have this huge number of white supremacists in America is so false. This this idea that we have this huge problem with racism in America, it is utterly debunkable and it is a lie from the pit of hell that is meant to cause you to retreat into your victim box and think of yourself as someone who needs protection from these boogeymen and the only people who can protect you are these quote-unquote elected Democrats. With Last I checked, I want to ask somebody in the city of St. Louis, are, are Democrats protecting you from failed school system, from your school system being constantly unaccredited? Are Democrats protecting you from the crime hotspots by MS-13 fighting local gangs over turf where they can deal drugs? Are, are the Democrats protecting you from having a tax base that's so low and gutted that y'all can't fund your schools, you can't properly fund your police, that you really need the merger from the city and the county to happen just so you can keep your government afloat? And, and I'm not totally against the merger for the city of St. Louis. But the point is, everywhere you see Democrats in control, they're not protecting the electorate. They're driving them down into the ground with policies that are failed, with government that doesn't work, and with high taxes, but extraordinarily low tax bases. 
Just look at Chicago. Chicago is a huge metropolitan city that should be thriving, but the corruption and uniparty rule by the Democrats has completely obliterated. The whole, the whole state is experiencing population loss that's out of this world. It's Chicago, New York, and California, the three population loss leaders for states in America. And all, all of the places I just named off have fantastic natural resources, beauty, and city infrastructure that, you know, it's it's the envy of other countries. Any any country anywhere outside of America would love to say if, if they could, they'd snap their fingers and take Chicago, the city, and put it right down where they were. Not the people, but the, the infrastructure, the buildings, the, the natural, everything. They'd just plop it right down in their country, and they would fill it up with their own countrymen, and they would just make it work because they would love to have it. They'd love to have any one of the major cities in, in California and, of course, New York. I mean, it's a, the jewel of, of the planet as it comes as it pertains to being a major city with with beauty and architecture and, and art and all of that. So what is it that the Democrats are really protecting us from? And, you know, I'm I'm sporting the permanent tan over here, so I know I'm supposed to be a Democrat. I'm supposed to be one of their core constituencies. They're supposed to be helping me. They don't help me with anything. All they want to do is pick my pockets and make it so I have less money to spend on my husband and the kids and their tuitions and cowgirl boots. They just want to stop me from getting up my cowgirl boot collection to where it could be. You know, it could be much bigger, but I'm paying the tax. If I didn't have to pay so much tax, do you understand how many boots I would have? I mean, it's a travesty, a fashion travesty. Not to mention the dresses. Not to mention the trips to the beach, you know. I mean, there would just be so much more, but I got to pay my taxes. So what are they protecting us from? They're not protecting us from degrading situations on television. They're not protecting us from the, the, the things we're seeing in public schools around the country. They're not protecting like the, the girl who we heard her audio yesterday, the sweet girl who was posting the scriptures on the wall when um, the Gay Straight Alliance had their little rainbow flags up. They're not protecting her from having an in-school suspension for sharing scripture on. She actually wrote them out. I said she printed them out. She actually wrote the scriptures out on notepaper, you know, post-its and notepaper and just stuck them up. Who, who was she hurting? It's the Democrats who feel like the Bible is not appropriate in school, but every prisoner in prisons in America gets a Bible. It's never too late to pick up the word of God and become free. But wouldn't it be nice if we let people have access to the Bible while they were still technically free? Like you're a kid, you start learning about how it's wrong to murder, steal, kill, covet, you know, lie. You learn all that while you're a kid so you don't ever end up in prison. But the Democrats aren't protecting kids from a lack of exposure to the Bible. Now, are they? Right here in Missouri, and I'm going to have to go ahead and call it out because I did call the office yesterday of Shamed Dogan. He is a state representative for Baldwin. And our legislators down in Jeff City here in the state of Missouri are proposing that the Bible be taught in school. It's it's something that's been proposed in other states. They don't mean teaching the Bible as in evangelizing kids. They mean teaching the Bible in school because the Bible is one of the source documents for all of Western literature. A lot of the references that we use on a day-to-day basis come straight from the Bible. If you don't know the allegorical tales is what you know secular people call them, but if you don't know the Bible stories... There's huge swaths of literature, Shakespeare. You just can't get it. The Bible is almost like, it's like the um, the cheat code. You know how on games, if you have the cheat code, you can win, you can beat, you can beat, you can say, let's play this game. And you got all the cheat codes. So you, you know, 
kick the stuffing out of the person you're playing because you have the cheat codes. The, the Bible is the cheat code for understanding Western civilization. And right now, you can't even break a Bible out at lunch while you're eating at a lunch table in a public school without somebody coming and saying, you can't have that out. Your classmates might see it and get offended. And we know why, because the word of God is a sword that goes out and it is effective and it never returns void. And when kids learn about Jesus Christ, they love him and they come to know him and they want to be a disciple. So we know why they don't want it out there. But who's protecting you? If you're looking at who's protecting you, is it the Democrats? Are neighborhoods that are run by Democrats safer? Are cities run by Democrats safer and more prosperous than the suburbs that are run by the Republicans that surround them? Are the Democrats protecting you from terrorism? From illegal alien crime? Are they protecting you from overtaxation, overregulation? Are they protecting you from, if you're in Alaska, are they protecting you from being able to um, have your hunting and fishing areas that are public lands being able to have that access? Or are they the ones who are part of taking away that access from you? But in the bigger scheme of things, are your Democratic representatives saying to you, American, get out there and get it. You're in America. You can do anything. Go get whatever it is that your 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 heart's desire. Go work for it. Go earn it. Go open your business. Go do whatever you need to do. Go get that education. Go get that extra training. You know, you don't need a you don't need a degree to succeed in America. Go get that apprenticeship. Go get that on the job training. Go work your way up. Save your money on the side and open a Chick Fil A. Are they are they saying that to you? Or are they saying, oh, are you a woman? You're a victim. There's a bunch of white patriarchy trying out there trying to crush you. You need us. Oh, I'm sorry. Are you black? You're a victim of racism and slavery. You can't do anything, America. You need us. Oh, are you, um, you know, whatever your sexual orientation is, your sexual choices are defining how you live in America as opposed to something that you do privately that we don't need to know about? That's what we were originally told. We weren't going to have to learn about everybody what they were doing. But now the Democrats have convinced us that what we really need to do is make sure that, you know, everybody knows what everyone else is doing and that we're defined by it. All of this victim status. When all over the country we have people coming in lawfully, immigrants from China actually are the it, so Asians are the outperformers of everybody else. Asians actually achieve more wealth, open more businesses, and have higher educational levels, higher wealth levels, and higher, uh, you know, everything, every metric, they're higher than the white population. So while Democrats are demonizing white people, they're not saying anything about Asians who are just kicking the stuffing out of every other, you know, demographic group. Are the Democrats protecting them from, so are they protecting white people from the Asians who are outperforming? I mean, I, I just can't find an area in which Democrats are actually answering up what they've promised, which is they're the great protectors of every victim group and they're going to fix everything in your life. All you have to do is vote for them and when they're in control, they'll fix it. And everywhere we look, we see them, they haven't fixed anything. So I'm not, you know, be a Democrat if you want to. By all means, because I notice I'm, I notice a little bit of hate going on. <laughs> um I'm not going to call anybody out specifically on, you know, but I'm just going to say um, that if you don't like the things that I say on the radio and you want to let me know about it, you have to travel quite a ways back down the line of haters because there are others who've been waiting longer than you have to tell me and you'll have to get behind them. So get your backpack and put a few water bottles in it and some provisions. 
I would get a Starbucks if I were you. You need some strong coffee and start the hike back to the back of the line if you don't like what I'm saying. Listening to this is a choice. And I, by all means, I want everybody to listen, but I don't want to be blamed for telling the truth about what's going on. The truth is the extremism we're seeing from the Democrats right now is due in no small part to their rampant failure at delivering on things they've promised to every minority or constituency group they've ever said is a part of their big tent. Now, I have to admit, Barack Obama gave a lot of successful wins to the LGBTQ, XYZ, you know, X times three, uh, exponential, superscript, whatever, whatever that group is. He gave a lot to them. Um, he gave them a lot. He did a lot. But for everybody else, especially the black community, they were just left holding the bag after delivering the votes and delivering the, you know, the, the trending on Twitter, yada, yada, yada. They're left holding the bag. And it's a shame because, uh, you know, I, I always talk about voting being transactional. And if you're voting for somebody and you're not getting what you want from them, then do not transact with them any further. Give your vote to someone who'll do what they said they would do. And, you know, it's crazy to keep doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a result that's different. And so because of that fact, because it, you, you can't keep doing the same old stuff and expect a different result, it means that the Democrats have continually robbed their constituents of the results that they were promised. And if somebody was treating you like that in your regular everyday life, you would 86 them. You wouldn't go to lunch with them anymore. You wouldn't be their friend anymore. You wouldn't let them come over to your house. Or if it was a business relationship, you would certainly not renew their contract. You wouldn't keep doing business with a person who promised and promised and promised and never delivered. So don't do that with your vote either. The big deal about all of it is that we're all going to have to answer for our votes, for the things I've said on the radio, for things you've heard on the radio, the, all of it. We're going to have to answer for it. And at the judgment seat, there won't be any excuses. Well, I had to vote because I was black. You're going to be there and you're not going to be arguing and you're going to have to receive the recompense, the recompense for the actions that you took. And you're not going to be able to hide it under the cross and say, well, you know, it's a, I get a pass, God's grace and all that. No. So take responsibility and stop giving away your vote to people who don't appreciate it and don't deliver any results. God bless you. Have a fantastic evening. Be back with you tomorrow. StaceyOnTheRight.com. 